Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Chantal Hazard is an artist and filmmaker interrogating the relationship between an artwork, the artist, and its viewer, which she views in parallel with law, policy, and the body politic, and often makes participatory paintings that embody this relationship. She graduated from the University of Toronto in political science and visual studies and is currently wrapping up an MA degree in artistic research at the University of Amsterdam with a thesis on the cultural production of autonomous space in Amsterdam. Her current body of work, Adjust City, or Adjust the City, performs the experimental role of artistic research by delivering a translation and analysis of the collective cultural production carried out by a decentralized assemblage of individual artists and activists working within the squatting scene and other autonomous spaces around Amsterdam. The ongoing self-documentation through visual, musical, poetic, and other forms of cultural production emerging from autonomous cultural space is interpreted as part of a collaborative activist and artistic urban process which has struggled to produce alternative autonomous free spaces as a force of resistance against capitalist logic and gentrification of Amsterdam as a hyper-tourist city. This episode was recorded in the summer of 2020 as one of my first interviews, so all mentions of COVID are super out of date and the sound quality is a bit off, but I hope you enjoy. Our conversation was recorded in Tekoronto on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, Huron-Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations. Hey Rebecca, what's going on? Nothing much, just sweating in my fan-filled apartment. Is it that hot there? It's not that hot, I'm just on the second floor and I feel like it's the sandwich apartment. Like I have an apartment above me and then like the shop below. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's not that hot here. I've heard it's been like 30 degrees and the air conditioners are breaking and... Uh Uh-huh. It's kind of mild here in Amsterdam. Well, that was going to be my first question. Where are you right now? I am in the charming city of Amsterdam, (laughs) where I am uh, doing a, just wrapping up, a research master's in artistic research at the University of Amsterdam. Yeah, and we met when you were in Toronto, just as like a, you're not just a random person in Amsterdam. (laughs) That you reached out to across the street. I'm really interested in your work. I'd be so flattered. (laughs) Do you want to describe your practice a bit for anybody listening who wouldn't know what like your work looks like? Uh, my practice is changing all the time. Uh, initially, I was really interested in participatory painting and interactive painting and trying to find ways of getting like the viewer or the audience involved in making or touching the artwork and the painting and having people lift paintings off the wall in a gallery just seemed like a revolutionary idea to me. So I made that happen. Uh, well, now I'm making films about. <laughs> I'm also still painting. Well, I did. I did fully make participatory painting, which was like a long goal of mine to make like interactive events where people were also painting, and then the paintings became, you know, completed works of art that were 
painted by like 300 people at a festival mm-hmm. in the exquisite corpse form. I've been playing a lot with exquisite corpses and the collective of unconscious surrealism. Do you want to talk uh, about one of the installations of your exquisite corpse series? Should I start at the beginning or in the middle? Uh, you can start at the beginning if you like. Oh, well, it started with an entire series based on Ovid's Fasti that is a book of poems describing the mythologies, the pagan myths of the months of the year. And so Janus is the patron saint of January, and he's the god of transitions, and he watches over you in passageways, like hallways and doorways, and he looks forwards and backwards in time. And so I made this painting of a face that was all interchangeable, and I'm. it's really hard to convince people you can touch a painting on a wall. Because that is not a customarily thing that people should do. Um, but then I figured out that if it was more of a game format, it would work. It was like a more of a familiar game. Like the Exquisite Corpse, some people have seen this triad of like feet and torso and heads. So then I was making those in Toronto. And the problem with them was that I had painted them. So they weren't really participatory. Like, yeah, you could go up and touch them, which seemed like a big deal to me. But um, still, it was all my mind, so it wasn't really a collective subconscious. It was cool because there was nine portraits, so when everything was mixed up, there was the possibility to make like over 500 different individuals, and it was called I Am You As You Are Me, and it was just this idea that you could, that you are shaped by all of your interactions with different people, and you take on different identities through interaction. Mm -hmm. And the people that you painted were people that you came across, right? Yeah, they were friends, artists, activists, people in galleries uh well yeah people doing interesting things and people that inspired me and young people and yeah environmental activist theater director my musician roommate uh emily mayrose who was run is still running northern contemporary which was a gallery where i was helping out uh, yeah my sister, who was collecting trash in the, in the beach <laughs> yeah people i love and people i know I moved to Amsterdam and I wanted to make participatory paintings in festivals because I was also doing that in Toronto and in New York City on streets and in parks and Dufferin Grove and Governor's Island and all these different like kind of interactive art festivals associated with pigment and my street festival on Crawford in Toronto. Um, yeah, and it was just ideas of like how you can present paintings in different ways and that they don't have to matter so much as yeah. art objects. Do you want to talk about the Crawford one a bit? Because I feel like the interaction with kids, especially when you talk about that installation, that was really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it was basically just me putting paintings on a dirty road. And these paintings are like quite big and they look like really nice art things that you wouldn't put on the street. But to me, they're just um, like toys, you know? It was interesting installing them with you and seeing like how comfortable you are handling them as these beautiful canvas paintings how quickly you assemble them and disassemble them. Yeah, I mean, now there's like 10 of them sitting under my bed. Well, nine actually, because there's three bodies. There's actually, yeah, there's a bunch under my bed right now because I made a bunch more here. So yeah, that was the whole point. I came to Amsterdam to study something totally different, like some theoretical idea that's very Dutch from metamodernism that was 10 years old already. And then I got here and I wanted to make these interactive art pieces, just sort of paintings. And the immediate place that was available was this like 
squatted ammunitions depot called the New and Mirror, and they were having a festival called Future Play, and it was all about interactive society and how you can engage like physically with art. So I joined them and was living there for a little bit because I was like unable to find a place to live, mm-hmm. and then I was able to make participatory paintings because Europe, you know, Amsterdam there's a big festival scene and the culture here it's a bit more uh, open and free for experimentation, like really free, like. You can't expect really to make money at it, but you can do whatever you want, you know? Mm-hmm. And was that where you did that show about futurisms in that space that you were talking about? Futurisms? Um, You had, a, like, a call for futuristic landscapes out a while ago. Oh, yeah, I was curating a show in a Vondel bunker. No, that was something else. It was also similar culture, like, it's this autonomous free space culture they have here. A, a lot of cities around Europe have this sort of, like, cultural spaces that are coming out of the squatting movement that are really like kind of yeah unused military and government buildings from the war and stuff so that was in a in a bomb shelter in the middle of Vondel Park which is designed to house the rich people when the atomic bomb goes off and the yeah so I just had a call I wanted to make an exhibition there because it's really a free space if you want to do something and you propose the idea you can do it Mm -hmm. so I just had a call for artists pretending it was the year 2,345. And then it was an idea that, like, we'd actually been in this bomb shelter the whole time. Society would need or look like and how you would get out. And there was some really interesting stuff that came forward from that. Hmm. Like, uh, my friend Caroline made ceramic laundry soap bottles, which I thought was so funny. Wow. That's the laundry soap bottles. <laughs> yeah, you have a history with laundry soap bottles. Very much yeah, so. we have a shared history with laundry soap bottles. This is. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about your practice of using found materials and, and garbage and your dumpster diving hobbies? I do love dumpster diving. Everything in my room is uh, ethically sourced from the trash. But uh, I've also heard that to use secondhand objects is to have survived. It, yeah, it's also to... Uh, like a sign of entitlement that you survive the wreck and that you can, anyways, mm. repurpose something. Um, I like which that. I never really considered. I like that a lot. Yeah, but it's also it also is making it like survivor's guilt. Yeah, a little bit. But also, why would I buy new shiny things when like other objects like exist within the world and hold people's and they're more shiny and they're better quality and they're older and they're wet. <laughs> Well made. They're not from IKEA. Well, maybe yes. they are. <laughs> but you don't have to pay for them. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you want to introduce your documentary and, and how that's been tied to your research and your thesis? Yeah, well, the film goes into the participatory paintings because it's also a participatory culture that I'm uh, investigating. Okay. So basically, the film is called Adjust City or Adjust the City, depending on if you read brackets or not. Well, it traces. Constance New Babylon and Constant, he's a artist from Cobra and the Situationist movement, and he had this whole New Babylon project that was imagining a future. So he was imag- he was like using maquettes and architectural drawings and paintings to imagine a society where the man wasn't needed to do work because he'd been completely replaced by modern technology, and they could be playful. People could be playful, and they wouldn't need a stable home. They could be transient and go in between like different living spaces because it was anti-capitalist and not tied to money. Mm-hmm. But then this art piece, as a fine art piece, was like highly 
you know, collected and accepted in institutions. And there's a whole museum on exhibiting Pobra and post-war avant-garde art and this kind of thing, but not the squatters movement at all. So what I'm really interested in is like this other project that emerged out of these experiments in conceptual art, Mm -hmm. because it's a whole parallel society that sort of emerged from different protest actions and stuff. Mm-hmm. in the 60s and the 70s and it had a high point in the 80s in Amsterdam and then continued and got criminalized in 2010 which is quite late actually for the criminalization of you know occupying abandoned buildings if you did that in Toronto I think you'd get kicked out and you would have no rights to a house there yeah. well you were but, even in one point in the film like you're looking at a map of Amsterdam and you was saying like where the highway and where all the gentrification was proposed Iowalwak man he is like this incredible philosopher artist Wow, this guy, he's a visionary. And he has this, yeah, I was trying to document all of the art in his house, which is also a squatted school. Yeah, maybe you have to cut in the clips from the documentary if you're really sound editing, because I can't do it justice. Oh, no, for sure. Well, if you let me, I can. <laughs> Some of it's squatter stuff. What's the main focus? Uh, well, the main focus was the wild years in Amsterdam when they were planning to turn into to this part of the city to turn into the Manhattan of Amsterdam by tearing down everything. And then that's that's why the Stopera got built. And that's why the subway got put in. But after that, they wanted to build up the whole uh, this whole area with, with huge uh, uh, Manhattan-like glass and aluminum buildings and stuff all the way to the central station. So this whole area was threatened with uh, being torn down and rebuilt. Yeah, so it's just an investigation of what the squatters movement is. I mean, there's a lot of studies that have been done on like the political and like activist work and social policies that are related to it, like the legal framework that it exists in, which mm-hmm. is also like always changing and subject to the different municipal uh, agreements yeah. with different collectives, um, depending on like if they're providing cultural assets to the city or if they're just providing living or if they're actively like degentrifying, you know, different people are tolerated in different ways. Yeah. How would you define so that- degentrifying? Because I find like artist movements are used as a gentrification force, but this squatting movement wasn't a force of gentrification. In some ways it is, of course, because it brings like culture and artistic uh, expression to a community and may expand the exchange value by expanding the use value of mm-hmm. the space but it's it can also you know add a kind of punk rock quality that takes away or or occupy a factory area that needs to be sold or is intended to be sold mm. that's this whole trend like industrial zones so there's a lot of well Io Wahlbike talks a lot about how you can should occupy like trans-industrial zones and create a kind of like utopia within the spaces that are otherwise untouched by like you know, domestic life, mm-hmm. because by doing that, you can occupy and and resist industrial development. Like I was listening to your last podcast about the Portlands and these dead animals that are just popping up there. What, the, what was her name that you were interested Oh, uh, Rachel Rosansky. She was at the warehouse too. Yeah. And this, I find this whole conversation really interesting to translate to like Canadian context and Toronto so context because yeah what happens to the portlands like well they're being <laughs> gentrified is what happens to the portlands 
But what say do the people get, like, in, and are there any people there to speak for it? No, because it's not a housing zone. So I can say from when I lived down there, people were very surprised where we lived down there because it's built as a residential slash industrial zone. So there's another um, artist who lives down there and has his factory down there. And then there's all the homeless people who lived underneath us in these, like, tiny little rooms with, like, a shared bathroom up at the top of the hall. So it's all, like, illegal housing and squatters essentially um and like slum lords so they have no say yeah i mean to be honest neither do the squatters in amsterdam anymore you know mm. like the high point of this was in the 80s and now it's like mm. kind of like a, like a different like cultural ideas and there's this whole i mean there's two different social policies that have been coming out of the resistance against what squatters do uh which is just appropriate space and that's like it's called a breeding ground where different organizations have then been given like low rent cultural space mm-hmm. to produce like a squatter-esque community except that they're usually on shorter terms and the whole idea of a squat is that it's not regulated yeah and also you have to qualify as an artist to be mm-hmm. part of this so all of a sudden this like institutional you have to have gone to art school you have to have like reported a salary based on art or some different quotas that's ridiculous yeah so only artists deserve fair housing it's they're not even for housing even just for studio spaces or 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 workspaces oh gotcha and then the other solution which is actually really interesting to me um it's called anti-crack Crack is the Dutch word for squatting because it's the door that the sound that a door makes when you crack it open. <laughs> um, but it's called anti-crack, and basically it's giving students or artists or people that already don't have housing that are, it's it's not great because it it's you don't get a lot of like social rights that you would have in a house. Like if you have to move out in three months or in one month, you mm-hmm. can do that. But it's occupying buildings that are otherwise empty old schools, commercial buildings, and it might only be for like six months or two years, but you don't necessarily know that when you move in. Mm -hmm. So you have to be flexible and it's not for everyone, but it's low rent, but they're essentially paid bodyguards or paying to be bodyguards so that the building doesn't get squatted. Huh. Which doesn't even happen in Canada. Those buildings are just left empty. Yeah. You know, so even though here it's like some kind of like reactionary policy against the thing that's cooler, since we don't have the thing that's cooler, it's interesting to think of ways you can use unoccupied spaces mm-hmm. and at all yeah and it was about unoccupied spaces as well but the documentary that you made also talks about different populations of people moving throughout the city so they talk about after the war how like the jewish sector was empty and they weren't like renting out the houses back to people right yeah well i mean it was that's like the, these protests about the, the stopera which is um yeah it's the former jewish ghetto the Stopera, the, the, the Stopera is a building that is a combined opera house and city hall. And it was designed uh, in like a high modern architecture in like the seven, 60s and 70s. And there was extreme street protests against first the tearing down of the houses that had already been like semi-demolished during the hunger winter because they'd been empty. So they'd already been occupied by like desperate people and people yeah. taking the wood away that needed uh, doors because yeah after the war there was no uh, heat you know resources in the city and was so, that the housing units that they took the roofs off to pressure people was that the same incident 
Yeah, they they would take the roofs off so that they wouldn't be squatted. Yeah, that was the first thing they yeah. would do when they would gain, you know, access property. Yeah, just so that people couldn't live in them to make them as useless as possible. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a post-war country, so it was already, like, they were decrepit buildings, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they, I mean, it had, Amsterdam hadn't been bombed, but people also had ravaged the city, trying to get what they could, copper wires, I don't know, it was a war. Do you want to talk a bit about the paint bombs? Because that was the first footage that you shot there, and that was something that, like, you've been talking about for a while. Yeah, paint bombs are going to be really useful for people defacing colonial statues. That's what I was thinking. I know, this whole Division 52 protest, I've been following it, and I just, I mean, on one hand, it's important that activists are seen doing the act, and that's how sometimes it can work, you know, like, bike lock yourself to the power station that you turned off or Mm -hmm. visibly get arrested for throwing the paint bomb or for for putting paint on a statue. This week's podcast recommendation explains the events around the protests outside Toronto's 52 Division police station. Listen to episode 110. Painted statues and union apologies from Sandy and Nora's Politics Podcast. Hear more details and subscribe to their podcast wherever you're listening now. Yeah, paint bombs add a lot of color to a protest. I've never seen it in action, um, but uh, all the footage makes for beautiful signs of resistance, I think, against state authority and against business as usual in the violent evictions or in yeah to express dissent mm-hmm. i think a paint bomb can be a really powerful tool that uh i'd never seen or heard of before yeah um, i think the clips the clip showing like the archival paint bombs and like showing how they're made like they're such beautiful objects and this kind of object-based history is something that like, runs throughout your practice yeah this whole object object oriented ontology is also why i'm getting quite I don't know. I don't like the Anthropocene idea because then it puts human at the forefront and there's so many non-human agents that are also acting and responding in a landscape, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, I always say, like, object-based knowledge, but there's just, like, oh, oh, Ob- oh, like, object-based oriented ontologies. Yes. It's just a way of, like, putting the primacy on non-human agents in a landscape so that you can think about different factors, like environmental factors or, yeah. Uh, Timothy Morton has this whole really amazing thing about hyper-objects mm-hmm. and how... Yeah, issues transcend like the human experience of them and become universal. Like climate change is not something that's only affecting humans, even if it is human caused. Mm. So, well, what is the role of like a bumblebee in that, or you mm-hmm. know, uh, a paint bomb? <laughs> yeah, this whole archived objects, archive material, material substrate, and physically, yeah, I think this is what art has the power to do. You know, hold on to and document an expression of a time. That's why it's powerful. How did it feel looking at all the footage of, like, police with, like, those big, round, like, black shields storming the squatters? I Just watching that in this moment of, like, police brutality it felt like a strong parallel. Yeah, right? That's this whole provost movement is quite famous in Amsterdam for, well, Netherlands and Europe for, um, yeah, they're provocative. Their, their entire point was just to provoke the police into acting, like, brutally in order to show that the assertion of force is wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. 
that people shouldn't get beaten for planting trees or for, at that time, I think it was illegal to yell in the streets or to gather in groups, uh, wow. you know, because it was after a war. So they say the Netherlands is like in the 60s, like the, the fastest revolutionizing country in Europe. Like, yeah, in France, there's May 68 and everything. Mm-hmm. But they were already really progressive, whereas in the Netherlands, I think they weren't. And then they became because of this cultural context. Yeah. And it was the war that set it off? Not, no, not necessarily the war, but like, you know, proto-hippies. Like people, honestly, I, I put it to experimental art. Like there was a certain mm-hmm. time in the state of like where like the Municipal Museum and Hans Plomp describes it in my film about how they... And I, I found the books later that make it sure that what he's saying is true because, you know, <laughs> but um, there was a curator and he's, yeah, and he was really excited about experimental art. And that's also where the Cobra movement got its like, you know, institutional support from. And institutional support, what do you mean by that? Like they were exhibiting experimental art in major museums in the 50s. Oh, uh, about like really rugged primitive painting ex- stuff. I mean, primitive painting. What do you what do you say? But they just wanted to like take away all the knowledge. Like it's the same kind of stuff I've looked at in surrealism and mm, like the intellect intellectualization of art. They were against it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and making um, collaborative works and the in- independent ego of the artist and yeah, rejection. They want an international. They were Cobra, like Copenhagen, Brussels, and Amsterdam, so different. But they they were also former, like, surrealists and situationists that were all, you know, in this milieu. Through your research, what did you learn about this kind of artist-activist position? Because I I find it something I haven't researched a lot, but it's a position I find myself in. (laughs) Yeah, it's a hard thing to explain. I... I'm approaching it now through like a lens of spatial justice mm-hmm. and different concepts of what space is. And Henri Lefebvre has some really interesting articulation of space, which is perceived, conceived, and lived. So there's like representational mm-hmm. spaces, represented spaces, and spaces like of the imagination or spaces where artists might fit is this conceptual space. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, they can also, I don't want to say like manifest destiny, but like preserve the idea of an alternative or present the idea of an alternative or imagine a utopia, you know, these kinds of things that artists always do. Mm. Um, but just depends on like the societal context of how well that's accepted. Yeah. Like, like making what you were saying about how, like there's these archives of black artists in Canada who have been expressing, you know, the same narrative for decades and we can only catch on to it now, but it's also like the tip of the iceberg that we finally like see the records of yeah indigenous resistance everything you know it takes this these things i won't say they take time but they shouldn't take that long that's what i'm wondering like it surprises me to hear that they were showing in in institutions in the 50s because if they're against if they're for squatters rights you think they'd be kind of anti-institutional the thing is squatting didn't really exist as like a movement then so it was sort of like parallel explosions Mm. you know and i think a lot of these experimental art groups like there's this one called the insect sect which is like the first environmental artist group in the netherlands and it's like like the cult of the insects and making like a butterfly opera and doing things um about impromptu performances in non-traditional spaces Mm -hmm. and so by bringing like hundreds of people together to watch that performance in that space then something new can happen you know that's the whole happening 
yeah. idea. And that's the core of the situationist movement. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, it's all hard to connect. I don't know. Like it's it's not linear. Yeah. That's another very weird thing about this film. Like if you watch it, it's not a documentary. I don't know if I should call it a film essay or a artistic research project. Like I really because it's looping. It's for a gallery in the in my head, so Well, I think you including clips of Butler and then these different transitions like really show the artist's hand in it and also the fact that we can hear your voice um is something that I really like. But why did you choose to include so much of, of Butler like and her work on performance? Because this idea of performativity and the different types of actions, like she talks about how a performance can yield like a perlocutionary or an elocutionary response and those two determine the amount of language to do something. Like it goes back to this jail Austin and performative language and if somebody, you know, says like performing a marriage right, if you say I do, now you're married, you know. Mm. But only in the context of that marriage right does that occur. So it's also like in the in the context of a protest, a man standing on the street means something different than a man standing on the street waiting for a red light to change. Mm. You know? So it's it's the theoretical aspects of what actions are that I included Judith Butler to explain. Yeah. It was I mean she applies it to gender theory and to queer theory and but I think it, it, it's obviously also for any activist or someone trying to subvert a norm. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting to see queer theory used um, as a subversion in like a in a housing argument. Like I thought that was really clever. Just how you read it. I that particular lecture. I think she gave it in Turkey, and it was around the time of the Standing Man protest in Gezi Square. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, always been this parallel in her studies as well. Yeah. How does it feel making this movie during like a housing crisis that's happening in Toronto? And then obviously with COVID, like everyone's doing this crazy housing shuffle with like 14 day quarantines. Um, Does it feel like more relevant or how do you feel after? Yeah, I think especially the stuff about the police brutality right now is really relevant and it's fascinating to see that I mean, police don't beat people on the streets publicly anymore, but they kill people. And yeah. so what? <laughs> what? What? <Yeah>. I don't know. <laughs> that's That's been a parallel. And I mean, the Netherlands is like, not totally white, but quite a white country, but also super responsible for the slave trade. So this has been like an interesting dynamic to hear unfold in all these different kinds of spaces here. I mean, they still celebrate you know, Santa Claus with oh like Yeah. It, and that's another thing. Like in the footage, you have different performances where people are acting out swore to Pete things because Robert Jessica Hotfeld is like anti-capitalist and anti-consumer. And he has this whole spiel about Claus. Claus is coming. And Santa Claus is like also this parallel for class. And huh. But in the footage, you end up with him in blackface, you know, chanting uh, incantations. Wow. So, As swore to Pete. Without context, yeah, as far to Pete, but without the Dutch context, it doesn't, yeah. But also what, with the Dutch, I just listened to a podcast about Schwarte Pete. <laughs> yeah, this Schwarte to Pete. <laughs> I can't believe it still exists. For context, like, Schwarte Pete is Santa Claus's helper? Well, yeah, he's acted usually by, like, what, you know, white Dutch children, 
blackface and they want to become Swarta Pete, so they blackface. It and was that's like a socially acceptable way to go to school until like three years ago. Well, also it was a socially acceptable thing for like teachers to do, <laughs> as Justin Trudeau did, like as a grown ass man teaching at a yeah. private school in Vancouver, so do you want to talk about your relationship to, to institutions? <laughs> <laughs> what institutions? Well, talk about your relationship to institutions as in um, your educational institutions and any art institutions that you've been with. Also, you've hung around a lot of artist-run centers, which are informal institutions in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird position because I'm in a university and I'm documenting and translating the artistic practices of people who are very outside of the institution but I don't think it's so black and white and I think there's a lot of uh people that are very open to working with you know for the purpose of documentation and for the purpose of recording like accurately recording histories that want to engage in dialogue with institutional spaces at one point I asked you know when I go in with my camera I usually ask someone in the room or if it's in space if it's okay if I film them and one woman who's a resident of a recently evicted squad, and then she kind of went on this wild rant about how she moved out. She became a squatter so that she wouldn't be like a fish in a bowl, and so she could just have her like independent society without being uh, researched by student by students and researchers. And then she like looks at me and winks, and she's like, "But you can do whatever the fuck you want, and you shouldn't ask permission for people to do things because." Nobody has the right to grant you permission but about anything over yourself. Like, wow. And then she, I wish I had recorded it because Damn. it was amazing. Did you see that to her? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We ended up uh, becoming, she included me in an exhibition of, like, in a, yeah, in a party. Awesome. Yeah, it was fine in the end. But at first I was so intimidated and I was like, yeah, I'm, like, doing this research project for the University of Amsterdam. Like, do you mind if I film you? I didn't know if I could or not, even after that, you know? <laughs> yeah, because you were questioned, because you were coming from an institution? Yeah, and just, tr as like, doing research and trying to understand a culture that I also contribute to and support and feel like is necessary to be documented because it's vital and it, it contains a lot of, like, recipe books for something else, like for uh, alternative autonomous society in a way which is on the threat of extinction you know it's not um very prominent let's say it's not as prominent as it used to be and it's constantly being evicted and battling for space so what's the view been like from amsterdam watching everything happen in canada art wise covid wise I feel so far removed, but so invested and involved. Like, it's my home, and I feel like I'll go back there to live. And I was there in the summer working, and I don't know with COVID. I feel like it's such a specific lived experience that's different for everyone mm -hmm. in different places. Like, if you have roommates or not have roommates, your life is completely different now. For sure, for sure. And I'm very fortunate to have three really great roommates. Love made this time very enjoyable to be honest but with lots of dinners and games but it's a weird it's a weird day to be alive isn't it it is it really is from the perspective of the housing crisis do you think that you've learned anything in holland that you'd like to bring back as like an organizing strategy or even as like um, an art movement did you see in that film about the tunnels that they dug 
to protect the nature around a squatted village, Rauhort, in the 90s. Because I've never seen tunneling ever, but it's so smart if you're preventing heavy machinery from entering a natural landscape. Because they would dig tunnels and occupy them. Oh my gosh. So that if the, if the, you know, bulldozers or the things came to dig, to cut the trees down, uh, they would kill people. So the bet was that they wouldn't come. And it's kind of like this trade off of like, it's like a, what's it called? A chicken war. Yeah, yeah. Well, same thing with people like chaining themselves to the bulldozers, the trees. Also great, also great. But the whole digging tunnels underneath Mm. their path, I'd never seen that. And I've seen some forest activism in West Coast. And I thought that was a really fascinating method. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also the paint bombs on these colonial statues. I think that's a really interesting uh, way of doing it. Yeah. Do you want to tell our listeners how to make a paint bomb? Sure. What you need is a balloon. I'm very excited. I'm going to make a paint bomb factory uh, in two weeks. Are you actually? Wow. Yes. Uh, it's sort of a workshop in, in the Vi Palace, which is a another kind of autonomous space here. And we found like this um, a vendor stall. It's like this wooden thing, like a wagon that you pull and mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. it's like antique looking for like a smoked fish guy or something. So we're going to make like a mobile paint bomb factory. Um <laughs> <laughs> But it's okay. So you take um, the biggest balloon you can find because the small balloons burst right away. That's not worth it. Melt a candle, a large candle. There's like super default emergency candles here that are red on the outside and then in the inside they're white beads. And that's when I realized it's the same wax that they're using 30 years ago to make the ones that were in the archive <laughs> because they're the same color pink. And I was very surprised to find out that this red candle, when I melted it, became pink because the inside it's. It's like an emergency candle, you know, so it's like really oh, yeah. uh, scanty on the paraffin wax and it, it's about like three inches thick or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they have them at home, but really any candle will do. It's not that environmentally friendly because when you do throw the balloon, obviously wax goes everywhere. Yeah. But uh, you're also on the street, so hopefully it'll get sweet. Um, so you have the hot wax in a big bowl and you can put hot water underneath it to keep it liquid. And then you're just dipping a balloon, like, until it gets thick enough to be uh, watertight. And then you let it harden, and you take the balloon out, and you can fill it with paint. And then you just seal it with a little bit of wax. And then you can throw it anywhere, um, yeah, to express dissent against state authorities. Against Johnny but- McDonald, <laughs> against Ryerson, all the people. Yeah, Ryerson, this was epic. <laughs> Go and do it. No, I, I haven't thrown paint bombs. I'm not actually, I'm just really interested in the methods right now. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct slash fact check a past episode, or would like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at RebeccaEcasolino at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast and help me avoid burnout, please visit our Patreon to subscribe. Check out the show notes for more details. If you can't donate, no worries. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Original artwork for Hopping the Fence by Alex Gregory. Original music by Jessica Price-Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.